Welcome to the All or Nothing podcast, where we bring to you companies and CEOs that are changing the game. And I'm your host, Rodrigo Ballone. This week, we have an entrepreneur that has built a multi-million dollar business in the cannabis industry. While most people in this industry are trying to open up dispensaries or become growers, she decided to create a platform that services everyone in the industry. It has the ability to give you all the information you need about cannabis regulations in a matter of seconds. The reason why this is important because as a business, this keeps you in line with the law so you don't get shut down for illegal practices. So let's go ahead and welcome the founder and CEO of Canarex, Amanda Ostrowitz. How are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Glad to be a part of this. I'm glad to have you on the show. Amanda, you are a regulator in the financial industry, but somewhere down the line, you decided to pivot and go into unknown territory and use your experience in the cannabis industry. Tell us, what sparked the idea for Canaregs? Absolutely. So I know you alluded to my past. I was working in bank regulatory law um, before this, and my last job before I started the company was actual uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank. And that's kind of how this all started uh, was because the cannabis industries had such um, grave banking issues. Now, what happened was I was trying to do some research on the banking-related issues and trying to find a solution for that when I started getting really deep into this research. And the further I went down this rabbit hole of research, um, I was just baffled, especially at the local level law. Um, every single city had entirely different laws, and there was different agencies within them regulating it. And I quickly realized I wasn't going to be able to fix the banking issue myself, but I had found this big information problem that needed solving. And that's what I kind of had taken on because I, I really was so frustrated um, doing my research. And I was hoping to find a place where all this information was aggregated and being tracked and it didn't exist. So I decided to build it. That was a very smart move because the cannabis industry has exploded over the last decade. And whether you like it or not, your state may be the next one to legalize it. What I like about what you're doing is that while most people are trying to open up dispensaries or become growers, you decided to create a platform that services all those people. So can you break down what you do at Canaregs and who could benefit from your services? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's an interesting one, too, in that, you know, a lot of people are going the dispensary route or something really specific. We get to serve every single side of the industry. And so what we do at Canaregs is we track all the laws and regulations that affect the cannabis business. Anything um, from the first time a city even has a meeting on the subject, we've caught it uh, through the passage of their ordinances and their regulations and even the actual forms somebody would need to fill out for their business. And what we did is we figured out how to organize all that information into a platform that made it easily searchable. Now, when I say like easily searchable, I mean, uh, if you go online and you buy shoes, you're like, all right, I'm going to go on the internet. I want a men's size 11, black leather loafers from Kohan. You go from like 10,000 pairs of shoes down to five pairs of shoes. We did that to law. We made it so you could search by the who, the what, and the where, um, and not just by keywords. Um, and we also really figured out how to track the lawmaking process so that people could get involved early. And because of the nature of what we do, and, and we keep it really um, neutral, we don't opine. Um, so we don't just serve the actual cannabis businesses. We serve the law firms. We serve the lobbyists. 
we serve the governments themselves, um, a dozen, you know, several dozen consultants, uh, as well as real estate purchasers and other technology companies in the space. So by being this really neutral, reliable source of the information, we get to really um, impact on all sides without taking a stance. Big data has impacted every industry. And if you have the ability to tap into that data and use it correctly, it can really transform your business. Can you discuss the power of your platform and its ability to provide valuable information at your fingertips? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's not even just within cannabis. What we've done, we're going to be able to expand across multiple verticals. But we kind of describe like this, you know, circle of lawmaking is kind of how I describe it. And usually, um, especially at the local level, it starts with a stakeholder that goes up to a city and kind of approaches them with, here's the kind of policy we want and here's why you think we think you should, you know, um, consider this. And the city will meet a couple times just to have informational items on it. Um, and if they're really interested in it, they might start pushing it through to the rulemaking process. But by the time the public tends to find out about this, um, or the other stakeholders that, that want to be involved in this process, it tends to be, you know, in, in the last third of its cycle. Um, and that's hard to, you know, get involved in at that point. And what we do is we track it from the very first time they talk about the subject so that all the relevant stakeholders can be involved. So that's where your lobbyists and your lawyers will get involved and people are buying real estate early and people are tracking down places to locate their businesses. Um, and it's allowing, um, you know, the governments to be able to see what their neighbors are doing. So that's part of it. The other thing is, is that we're really this research hub that everybody needs. So what was, you know, a simple question that could otherwise take four hours to answer, people are finding in our platform in a couple clicks of the mouse. So, I mean, any lawyer who's practicing in the cannabis space and doesn't use us is, is at a distinct disadvantage. Uh, we have over, you know, 80 law firms in California alone using the software. Um, and, and the government's using us because they can see, rather than copying what their neighbor did on a policy, they could come in and compare, you know, how 50 different cities dealt with one issue. So let's just say something simple, like how late can a dispensary stay open? You know, they could see what every single city around them did for hours of operation. They can see what they did for taxes. They could see what they did for uh, odor control, uh, all of that kind of stuff. So it's really helping them draft policy and track. Uh, so lots of different use cases and lots of different users. And what's really interesting is that um, you know, and how we figured out how to track local law, people really haven't been doing it in any highly regulated industry that's super localized in nature. So um, we're also looking to expand into renewable energy and driverless vehicles, um, alcohol and beverage, basically anything that's got a lot of local level law. The cannabis industry is at its infancy. It's practically the wild, wild west. Companies are trying to claim territory before it gets too crowded. In your experience, what are some of the biggest challenges when it comes to growing a company in a new industry? Oh, my. Which, which one of the many? I, as I say to people, you know, we're definitely just in the first out, uh, sorry, in the first inning of the baseball game, you know. We might be at the bottom of the first inning, but this is a nine-inning baseball game. So we're very much in the infancy, and, and we, we have a lot yet to learn. Um, but there's so much that's hard because, you know, in an infantile industry, there's definitely hesitation from investors. Now, let's just not even look at the fact that it's a young industry. Um, let's talk about the fact that it's federally illegal. So that creates really huge challenges when it comes to banking and getting standard bank accounts, being able to process credit cards. Even a company like ours that doesn't touch the plant, we struggle with that. 
Um, there's often, you know, a lack of education, which makes it challenging as well. So we're constantly educating the people uh, who we're talking to about this industry as well, um, because there's so much stigma around it. But that's really breaking down quite quickly, we're seeing in the last year or two. Um, but it's just a lot of unknown and constant change, constant. If there isn't change or you're not seeing change, uh, then, then your eyes are closed because it's, it's never ending. The cannabis industry is bringing in a lot of money for the states that have legalized it. But there are still some kinks that need to be worked out. You alluded to it. You mentioned that, you know, it's still illegal in federal government eyes. And most banks have limitations when it comes to working with cannabis related businesses. In your opinion, what needs to be done in order to get our country to treat cannabis like every other drug? Well, I think step one is education. I mean, there needs to be more education. And the problem is, though, is that this is a country that's run by lobbyists. And the reality is, is the education probably would have already been there and have, have hit. Um, but for, you know, the big pharmaceutical companies, for them, it's much easier to pop a pill out of a machine uh, than it is for them to grow a plant. Um, so the lobbyists are really strong, um, you know, big alcohol and big pharma um, definitely see cannabis as a threat. Um, and so that's a big part of it. Um, but what we're seeing is at a national level right now, the polls are showing that a majority of Americans are in favor of legalization. And so we, we're seeing the public opinion change. And I think now we need to see um, action at the federal level. And that's challenging because there's a lot of maneuvering and especially right now with a, you know, a guy like Jeff Sessions in office. But in the last couple of weeks, we've definitely seen um, some big changes. For example, um, Boehner, you know, came out in support of medical marijuana, and he'd always been very much against it. And he, in fact, even joined the board of a large cannabis company. So that's, you know, big forward progress. Um, and, you know, Cory Booker also got some, or sorry, Gardner got um, some assurance from the Trump administration that they weren't going to um, crack down on Colorado's legal marijuana industry. We don't know what that means for other states. But there's some big things that have to happen, and it really, unfortunately, has to come at the federal level because it seems like the public opinion is in favor of it. Um, and so this is now an act of federal government that we're waiting on. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of government action is dictated by lobbyist dollars, and, well, pharma companies have them. Funding is a part of business that every company has to think about when it's trying to grow and increase profits. The problem is, the process of finding a lender and getting approved currently sucks. So if you're looking for a way to get the funding you need quick and easy, you should check out Cabbage. Cabbage helps small business owners get funding within minutes. You can apply online or from your phone. The days of convincing a banker that loaning you money is a good investment is over. So don't wait. If you're looking to secure funding for your business today, I'm talking about in less than five minutes. Visit cabbage.com slash all or nothing. There's no cost to apply. And as an all or nothing listener, when you qualify for funding, you also get a $50 Visa gift card that you could use wherever you want. So go now to cabbage with a K, K-A-B-B-A-G-E dot com slash all or nothing. I just want to let you know that this line of credit is subject to credit approval. See the terms and conditions. All cabbage business loans are issued by the Celtic Bank, a Utah chartered industrial bank member of FDIC. As a business, you've had fast growth, 
but with fast growth comes growing pains. So what's your mindset when it comes to taking the steps necessary to grow, but also making sure that you're putting out fires at the same time? I mean, our whole job is fire prevention, right? Or firefighting, right? You try to prevent fires when you don't prevent them, then you, then you fight them. But it's always about, uh, you know, protecting your team and making sure basic needs are always being met. But for us, uh, you know, we're growing quickly, but we also bootstrapped. Um, and we did it deliberately um, to see how far we could grow this thing on our own. And, you know, it's what was so great about it was that when we needed to pivot and focus our energy on other things, we could um, because we weren't having our hands held. Now we're at this point, though, where we're inhibiting our own growth uh, because we have a lot of demand, um, but we haven't even spent money on marketing. And, you know, we... Um, have a lot of people that don't know about us yet. So we're actually raising so we can automate more of our technology and put a real sales force in place. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, what that brings. What's cool is, you know, is growing in, in pace and stride really allows you to address problems as you go. And it also leads to a lot of loyalty with your customers who, you know, believe in you. And so it's, it's an interesting one. And finding that balance is different for every single company. Some companies need explosive growth initially. It all depends on how you fund it. And we've been self-funding um, for so long, you know, existing purely off our revenues. Um, but also there's, you know, risks to that. That's for sure. People always talk about technology taking jobs. But no one ever talks about how technology helps small business owners scale and grow their business at a lower price point. What advice would you give someone who is struggling to build their business and adapt to the market? You know, it, it, it's interesting because there is a lot of like tech that is per se replacing jobs, but it's creating new jobs too, right? Um, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, people were worried when we started that we'd be replacing attorneys' jobs and instead we made these attorneys more efficient so that they could go out and actually serve their clients rather than spending their days researching and yet at the same time their clients are using us and they're using us to answer the easier questions themselves without having to call their attorney and the attorneys don't mind actually because the five minute questions that you call and ask them those take them just as many minutes to bill out as they do to uh, answer your questions so um you know you have to look at it like that um, but also remember i'm i'm making jobs for attorneys you know i am currently um employing several attorneys and research analysts and uh, continuously creating more jobs. In fact, it's one of the things we're proudest about, you know, having bootstrapped our company uh, from two people to 14 people and getting to create jobs for 14 people is really exciting. Um, you know, I know that tech can seem scary in that, in that sense that it's going to replace, but it's more of a shifting of the workforce. And the reality is that it's going to be adapt or get left behind, you know. Even in the legal world, it's definitely some people are – generally like afraid of tech, especially the attorneys who've been practicing for 40 years. And it's getting to this point where like they have to adapt or they're going to have to retire um, because they just can't be efficient enough uh, without tech. And the game changes. Flat fees become um, more common uh, and there's more access to information on what, what services should cost. So um, clients are demanding better pricing. And, and so in order to stay competitive, uh, technology becomes necessary. So running from it is definitely not going to be what saves you. Adapting and optimizing is going to be critical as this um, you know, revolution of tech as a whole continues. Social media has really changed the game. It has allowed us to talk directly to our audience without a middleman. 
In your opinion, what are some key things that need to be done in order to grow your brand and your community? Well, a lot of it is hiring the right people because I'll tell you what, I'm not the queen of social media and it is like the most torturous thing for me, but it is absolutely critical. So, you know, knowing what your weaknesses are and aren't, I'm so grateful that I was able to bring somebody on recently to manage that for us, communications as a whole, um, and our social media and marketing messaging. It's so it's so critical and also understanding how to engage them and giving about, you know, it's interesting because you want to give away the right amount of information to lure people in but not give it all away. And it's just a, it's an interesting world we live in with, with uh, social media and, and it's so critical. And it's interesting because, um, you know, we're a company that's trying to play this really neutral um, middle ground stance in what we do so that, you know, we don't taint our work uh, with our opinion and um, it, it like limits what you can do on social media if you really want to uh, stay true to the branding message you're trying to send. And so, you know, there's it's hard because a lot of uh, people that are very successful with social media, are, are, they have a shtick and it's funny um, and it's, it's very clear where they're aiming and when you're trying to create this um, sense of neutrality and reliable information, you have to take it a little different. Although we've still found our ways to be funny and we have lots more plans of of humor within there, but we'll never get to be like Wendy's, you know, Twitter, where, you know, they just burn everybody, which is epically entertaining. I'm in California, and there are farms and wineries everywhere. How has legalizing cannabis affected the other agriculture businesses? Are they losing market share? Um, it's actually really interesting you ask this, because I'm speaking in San Luis Obispo on May 10th at a conference called Weed and Wine. And when I get off this podcast with you, I'm actually hopping on a call with my panelists for that. And it's interesting because they're very complimentary. And there was some thought that there would be, you know, competition. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it seems like the competition is really only for labor that's challenging. So with all the crackdown on the federal level and immigration, there's a lot fewer um, migrant workers. And I think there is going to be some... Um, competition there um, because there's already not enough workers in, in the fields as is for certain agricultural crops and the cannabis industry can generally pay a little bit more. Um, you know, in Colorado, it was different. It was more like the fast casual or, you know, your Domino's and Pizza Hut that were struggling to find employees because they're working in dispensaries instead. Here, it's definitely going to be on the farms. But when it comes to things like water, cannabis is actually much lower uh, water user than, you know, your almonds, your wine, and many other agricultural products. So that hasn't been too um, competitive. And the size of the plot that you can grow cannabis on is much smaller um, than when you can for wine and, and many other things. So yes, uh, it's definitely increased the price of certain types of property, um, but not so much affecting the existing ones. Um, and in fact, some, you know, farmers that might have felt like they had to farm forever might actually be finding a great exit um, and selling their properties to cannabis companies. Earlier, you talked about real estate prices and people going in to buy property because of the cannabis industry. Can you talk more about that? When it comes to licensed cannabis businesses, you know, each city has different laws about where these businesses can be zoned and which are allowed. So some places might allow for dispensaries, but not for cultivation facilities. Some might allow for cultivation and um, manufacturing 
and testing, but no dispensaries because they don't want it at the store level, like, you know, they don't want it so visible in their community. Some places will allow for everything and others allow for nothing. And because of this and because um, the majority of cities do prohibit it um, in its entirety, it's created a, a big rush on the places that do allow uh, for any of these license types. And what it's done is it's created a situation where any available property is getting bought up really early on. The first time the city even talks about, oh, let's draft a potential ordinance for cultivation. People are going in and buying property predictively and hoping it will be zoned um, correctly. And anything that is zoned correctly after these laws are written, the prices double and triple overnight um, because there's such a run for these properties. Um, so, you know, there's it can be really challenging in certain environments um, to get a piece of property and therefore the prices have just gone sky high, like especially if you look at like Monterey County, the greenhouses, um, they're the way they wrote their zoning laws is in order to cultivate it had to be in a pre-existing greenhouse. Um, and then, you know, I remember looking at Pacifica um, not so long ago when they first started talking about um, allowing for some cultivation and manufacturing and um, I, I remember looking at LoopNet, which is like the commercial real estate site, and then looking at it again two weeks later, and everything I identified that would have fit the model was gone. And I'm not in the business of that, but there are a lot of companies that are making good money buying these buildings, um, but it does make it a lot harder for the small business owners to get into the space. Uh, they are, you know, people who are in the black market trying to get a compliant space and, and a proper license, and, and these real estate prices are being driven up. Um, when it comes to actual, like, residential real estate, I haven't really studied that as much. Um, but, you know, there are some areas where there are bustling communities, uh, like Desert Hot Springs, that's, you know, hugely cannabis friendly and the amount of workforce that it's brought out there and um, the number of um, licensed facilities has definitely led to an increase in population, which, um, you know, presumably could lead to an increase in local housing prices, but I just don't have the stats on that off the top of my head. Amanda, that was a great interview. Is there anything else you want to tell the audience before you go? No, just uh, if they have any questions about what we're doing or um, the cannabis industry as a whole, um, reach out at um, canaregs.com and um, shoot us a note or email admin at canaregs.com and we'd be happy to tell you some more information on what we're doing over here. I want to thank Amanda Ostowitz, the founder and CEO of Canaregs, for being on the show. And if you want to hear more interviews like this, make sure you follow the All or Nothing podcast on iTunes, the Podbean app, or you can find it on our website, thecoolmedia.com. That's a wrap for this episode of All or Nothing, where we bring to you companies and CEOs that are changing the game. And I'm your host, Rodrigo Ballone.